I invite you this morning to look with me in the book of Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet, the weeping prophet. Jeremiah, the first chapter. We'll begin reading this morning at verse 11. We'll read down through the end of the chapter at verse 19. Jeremiah 1, 11. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north disaster will be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come. And everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the work of their own hands. But you dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us that we see this rightly. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Give us hearts of repentance. May we be rightly humbled and also rightly encouraged as we now look into this, your word. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The text doesn't tell us if the two visions here in chapter 1 are part of the original call. We know the call of Jeremiah we see very clearly in chapter 1 from verses 1 to 10. And it appears this is also connected. We're not certain of the proximity and timing. The whole chapter on calling has a profound effect on all of us as believers in the way we understand what it is, first of all, to even be human beings made in the image of God. If God knows me before I'm conceived, if God has plans for me before I'm born, then we take horrible action when we mistreat other human beings, when we deprive them of life, in the womb, out of the womb, we should tremble. Because in each case, we're dealing with image bearers. Now, in the second half of the chapter, Jeremiah's call is made clearer and more focused as he sees two common sights 
that we would have seen in this little village of Anathoth about any time. In fact, the Lord uses what you could kind of call a show and tell for Jeremiah. He shows him something, asks him what he sees, and then he explains it to him. And when I read this, it, it is intriguing, is it not? Twice he says, verse 11, Jeremiah, what do you see? And then in verse 13, second time, what do you see? Mr. Spurgeon put it this way, the question with which God usually begins his conversation with each of his true servants is the one addressed to Jeremiah. What do you see? I'm afraid there are some ministers nowadays who do not see much. Now, he's writing this in 1871, preaching this, by the way. Judging by what they preach, their vision must be all cloudland, where all they see is smoke, mist, and fog. Oh, my word. Or, well, no, I won't go there. Questions about digits regrowing. I often meet with persons. Some of you have an idea of what I just said. Many of you have no clue at all. That's all right. I often meet with persons who have attended the same ministry for years, and when I've asked them even very simple questions about the things of God, I found they do not know anything. It's not because they're not able to comprehend quickly when the truth was set forth plainly before them, but I fear that it was in most cases because there was nothing that they could learn from the minister to whom they'd been accustomed to listen. The preacher had seen nothing, and therefore when he described what he saw, of course, it all amounted to nothing. No, my brother, before you can make an impression upon another person's heart, you must have an impression made upon your own soul. You must be able to say concerning the truth, I see it, before you can speak it to your hearers, so they also shall see it. It must be clear in your own mind, by the spiritual perception which accompanies true faith, or else... You'll not be able to say with the psalmist, I believe, therefore I've spoken. Let me say over again that sentence which I uttered a minute ago. The speaker for God must first be a seer in the light of God. And my friend, this defines not only the prophetic office, it defines the office of being a pastor, a preacher, a teacher. We don't come up here and make stuff up out of whole cloth. We don't come up here and give you our latest impressions of what may be going on. We are here to deliver a message. Paul will describe us in, I believe it's Corinthians, as a very peculiar word for a servant. It was literally a word used to describe the guys that on the great trireme ships where they had three uh, uh, areas that the oars would be in, three decks. The term was used for the guys on the lowest deck. Now I'm going to tell you something, folks. When, you, when you're using oars on an ancient ship, you don't want to be on the bottom, but that's the word he used to describe it. He further describes it in this way. The task of the servant is to carry the meat, the meal, and not mess it up, getting it from the kitchen to those who are eating. This is seen throughout the teaching of Scripture about those who would serve. 
He said it's a call here to obedience. And our struggle is we, we want to think that obedience ought to actually be easier than it, than it is. Lord, I'd obey you if it wasn't so stinking hard. If you made my circumstances easier, if you put the people around me not to be so blessedly annoying and difficult, I'd do a better job obeying. It's hard to obey. I'm not denying that. But my friend, the call to obedience is the call to trust God's word in our tumultuous world. Not have you see two main things here. First, the Lord's watchful word. Now, if you're reading verses 11 and 12, if you've got a little study Bible or even note, you'll, you'll pick this up. But it's weird if you don't know what's going on. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Now, let me stop there. We don't know if this was a vision of an almond branch. We don't know if it was a dream or whether uh, Jeremiah has just wandered around the community of Anathoth and he looks out and he's, he's looking at this almond tree and he sees the branch and the Lord says, so what do you see there, buddy? Uh, almond branch? I test, right? What do you see? Now let me ask, what are the, what's, what's the signs of spring? Kind of depends on where you live, right? If you're in D.C., it's the cherry trees blossoming. In the northern U.S., it's the return of the robin. Around here, jonquils, blooming plum trees, and dogwoods, and my allergies going off the charts. In Anathoth, the little village northwest, or northeast, excuse me, of Jerusalem, it was the blossoming of almond trees. In fact, Anathoth is still a center for growing almonds, well over 2,500 years after this. But you're still, so what's this got to, what's the almond branch got to do? Well, it's a play on words that doesn't come across in English. Because the word for almond branch, saked, I think that's how it's pronounced. Hebrew is not my forte. Sounds a lot like the word watching, soked. Saked, soked. The play on words is this. Even in Anathoth, in that day, and it's still true, they called almond branches or almond trees the waking tree. Whenever it was blossoming, it meant the world was waking up again. So here's the picture. Jeremiah, what do you see? Well, I see an almond branch. And the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The emphasis here is on the watching. That the Lord himself is watching to fulfill his word. The purpose of the vision was a warning that God's announcements of judgment through the earlier prophets have not been forgotten. The Lord didn't forget what he said to Isaiah. He didn't forget what he had said to any of the previous prophets. Friends, hear this. We live in a world and a time that wants suggestions and thoughts, but not directions. And God reveals himself, speaks to us, 
And we, in turn, are to speak this in our world. We have a general call to be rightly prophetic in our time, as tumultuous as they are. How desperately this is needed. Now, some who are specifically called out, it's like the Lord has you cut out from the rest of the herd and has cornered you to move you a certain direction. But my friend, all of us have this calling for the sake of those around us to clearly, plainly, consistently declare what God has said. A rank outsider, said one brother, two centuries before the time of Jeremiah, said this, there's no God in all the earth, but in Israel. The man who confessed that was a Syrian fellow named Naaman. Healed by one in whom he used not to believe. And the God, a God whom he had not known. The God not only over Israel, but all the world as the triune God of the Christian faith now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The prophet's task is to obediently declare God's word and wait for God to fulfill it. Now, you may labor a long time and not see fruit. Parents, some of you have labored long on behalf of your children. You've taught them the word. You've tried to instruct them. You've spoke to them of Jesus. You have prayed for them. You have prayed with them. You have prayed over them. You have wept. You've done all these things, and you still haven't seen what you've prayed for. Don't stop. Trust God. Continue to pray. And don't stop speaking. Don't stop telling them the truth. Now, there, there can be a thing along the way where it's a pearls before swine, where it's time to stop. But ultimately, hear me, Christian. You and I have a task to obediently declare God's Word. God is using His Word for His own purposes. Especially those of us who would undertake preaching or teaching God's Word must be faithfully obedient. It's still the Lord who has to make all of this effective. My task is to accurately, with as much skill as God grants me by the power of the Spirit, to declare this word to you. The outcome is God's, not mine. That's why I always found it reprehensible that we actually give awards and honors to churches that have the most baptisms like they have all that much to do with it. I'm sorry to be that blunt, but this is reality. God saves sinners, not us. And we ought not be getting awards in this life because somehow in the providence of God, He saved more sinners under our ministry so we can get an award. Hmm. Enough said. But here's the reminder, 1 Corinthians 3. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, 
but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Hear this, my friend. God will do what he says he will do. And sometimes that's a word of judgment. We'll see that shortly. Isaiah 55 For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, do not return, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now for us, the context here appears to be primarily one of judgment, of wrath. But my friend, for us, God's Word has glorious promises that we ought to embrace and we ought to count on and believe. The promise of redemption in Christ Jesus, Colossians 1.14. The promise of the forgiveness of sins, 1 John 1.9. The water of life, Revelation 22. The gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2. Comfort and mourning, righteousness if you hunger and thirst for it, Matthew 5. And even this greater comfort, Christian, something that Jeremiah could only see dimly, 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That's why it's through Him we utter our amen to the glory of God. Christian, God's watchful word is this, if He has promised, He'll perform it. If it is a promise of deliverance, he will deliver you. If it's a promise of judgment, count on it. Judgment will come. He keeps his word. Second consideration. The Lord not only has a watchful word, he also has a wrathful word. Now, I will admit this. The wrath of God has fallen on hard times in in our era. And, And I will acknowledge there are times that some of our brethren seem to preach about the wrath of God, and it sounds more like the wrath of man. They sound like they're just mad. And it's a chance to yell and shout and rail against people. But just because some go too far doesn't mean you and I ought to stop because the Word promises judgment as well as salvation. The Lord's wrathful Word begins at verse 13 with what I'd call a scalding judgment for sinful instability. He he asks him, what do you see? And he says, I see a, a boiling pot. Literally, it says a pot blown upon. It's a pot placed on a fire, and as the fire has burned hotter and it's beginning to boil, the wood is burned away, the ashes are forming, and the pot has shifted. Now, I don't know whether you've ever done any outdoor cooking on an open fire. Theoretically, a lovely thing to do. Practically, a blessed nuisance. It's hard to do. I have yet to get a hot dog cooked right over an open fire. It's somewhere between raw and charcoal. 
So he's watching this pot. And I, the vision I get, the way I see this as I look at it, I think he's, he's, he's walking about Anathoth, and the Lord, he looks at the tree, and the Lord says, what do you see? Well, I see an almond branch. And he goes a little further, and somebody's outside cooking. Well, what do you see? Well, I see a pot boiling, and it's tipping, it's tilting over to the north. Hmm. Scalding judgment is about to come from the north on Judah. Although Babylon is due east of Judah, they're not about to risk their armies crossing the Arabian desert. That would not be good logistics. So they'll go north first, follow the Euphrates River into Syria, and then come south to Judah. So what is this danger? Why is it coming? Why does he say, verse 14, out of the north, disaster will be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I'm calling all the tribes of the kingdom of the north, and they'll come. Everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. Why is this? They have made offerings to other gods, verse 16, and worshipped the work of their hands. They violated one of the first key elements of their service to God. You shall have no other gods before me. And they've tried to the best of their ability to ignore that and try to keep contact with the one true God while at the same time worshiping these custom-made gods that are a little flashier, a little more fun, Sex sold even 600 B.C. And many of these idolatrous things were connected to sexual activity. Once they thought they could share allegiance to Yahweh and other deities, they were guilty of a breach of the covenant. The Lord is saying He's watching over His word of threatened punishment to carry it out. It's going to come from an enemy attacking from the north. The vision here is a powerful foreign power coming who sets up. Now, when you see that word there, they set up their thrones in the gate at Jerusalem. The gates of the city were the place where they would have the most armor, where they'd have the most military might, because you're trying to keep enemies out. The gates of the city were also where the wise men would typically show up, the wise of the city to sit and hear people out and give them advice. And so here's the picture. The very thing that declares to everybody inside the city and to everybody outside the city, you're in Jerusalem, is going to be gone. And foreigners are going to set up their throne. See, this is one of the ways you showed you'd conquered a city in the ancient world. You'd set up your mobile throne right there in the gates of that city. Now, if you want to look over in Jeremiah 39, verse 3, I'll show you something. In Jeremiah 39, we're told in verse 1, the ninth year of Zedekiah, this is the last king of Judah, in the tenth month, tenth month Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year, now think about that, two years nominal, in the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. Verse 3, then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate. And now we have lovely, long, difficult-to-pronounce names. 
Nergal saw Azer of Samgar, Nebu saw Sekim, the Rab Saras, Nergal saw Azer, the Rab Mag. I will not for a moment pretend to tell you what a Rab Saras and a Rab Mag are. By the time we get 39, I'll know what that is. I cannot tell you this morning. But with all the rest of the officers of the king of Babylon, where did they set up? They sat in the middle gate. This is going to happen within Jeremiah's lifetime. This promise of wrath will be fulfilled. Oh, my friend, hear me when I say this. I don't rejoice at the thought of you suffering under the wrath of God Almighty. But I will not for a moment tell you that won't happen if you refuse to repent. Refuse him to your own destruction. The day will come, my friend, when you'll bow. You know, I'll never do that. I, that that's, you know, I always love these folks. The Lord and I have worked something out. No, you haven't. You've not worked anything out. You think this was an equal relationship? That you're, a, a, as a, uh, a clay thing, made out of dirt, going to call the sovereign of the whole universe in and have a little tete-a-tete, a little face-to-face discussion. Now, Lord, I really don't want to give up these things, and I know you really don't want me to. All those Christians think it's sinful, but I know better. You and I are okay, right? Let me tell you who you're talking to. You're either talking to yourself or you're talking to the enemy. But the Lord has no part in that parlay because there is no parlay. You repent and believe on his terms. Scalding judgment for sinful instability. But at verse 17, I see this stable service in what you could call a hostile environment. A great passage here. At verse 17, we're told that you, (laughs) the Lord doesn't coddle him. He just says, dress yourself for work. Literally, it says, gird up your loins. Now, for those of us that don't wear robes, we don't know what that means. But the idea was, whenever you wore those robes, if you had to do something that required a lot of activity, you would actually bend down, reach through the robe, get, grab the back hem, pull it up forward between your legs, and stuff it into your belt so you could move. Nothing worse than getting tangled up in your robes when you need to be active, right? Dress yourself for work. Arise. Say to them everything that I commanded you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. Behold, I make you this day. See the descriptions? Three things. Fortified city, iron pillar, bronze walls, against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. He's basically told you're going to have five major enemies. Oh, Christian, lay hold of this. A great passage to lead us to enduring even when our circumstances are hard and we're suffering. We're not useless. We're not worthless. We are also not the masters of our own fate. We are to stand. And he tells this kid, remember we think Jeremiah is about 18. 
Now, admittedly, some of us at 18 were smarter in our own eyes. Right? I know in my own case, I bordered on infallible. I'm not saying I was, but I got really close. But at 18, you are also typically a bundle of absolute insecurity. We try to hide it with our chutzpah. (laughs) He says to this boy, get up, get to work. You're going to talk to all these people. You're going to tell them what I tell you to tell them. And if you run from it, I'll embarrass you. I'll shame you in front of them. Don't you dare run. You do this. And I'll make you like a fortified city, like an iron post, and like a bronze wall. And literally what it's saying there, not like a a wall that's wood with bronze clasps. He's saying literally a wall of solid bronze. Jeremiah had to be hard-headed and thick-skinned in order to defend himself against kings, priests, and all the people of the land. But his only offensive weapon would be the Word of God. Now, Jeremiah is not immune to human suffering or doubt. His security doesn't rest in his cleverness, his stamina, but in the fact that God is with him. The calling to be a servant of the Lord and of His Word is a call to endure. Oh, Christian, hear me. Endure. Endure in obedience and faithfulness. Endure. When you slip and fall flat on your face, endure. When it doesn't seem like anything's going right, endure. When you are emotionally blooded, mentally confused, when everything around you seems dark, stand, endure. He is faithful. The calling of the servant of the Lord is a call to his word to endure. Think of how Paul spoke to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, this is his charge, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, will turn away from listening to the truth, and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Phil Rackin said it this way, it's not Jeremiah's call that made him indomitable. It was God's protection. God did not just make Jeremiah strong. He promised to stay at his side to rescue him, to help him stand and be overcome. Now the promise seems like a wild exaggeration. 
I mean, think about it, think of it this way, folks. What if the Lord's calling to you was to be a prophet, and here's what I'm going to tell you. Everybody in your family is going to be mad at you. Everybody in church is going to be mad at you. Mayor Springfield, city council, going to hate you. Governor of Missouri, every elected official, loathes you. In fact, you're known in Washington, and they hate you there too. But you go ahead and tell them what I tell you to tell them. What? Lord, I'm just a kid. Speak what I give you. No matter who stands against Jeremiah, no matter who threatens, no matter what persecution comes, he's to stand. Christian, hear me in this. Now, I know for some of you, 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 you struggle with this because you think, well, I don't know enough yet to stand. You know enough. I'm not saying you shouldn't know more, but you know enough. You know there's a God to whom you must answer, Christian. You know there's a God who convicted you of your sin. You know there is the Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life, died for sinners, raised from the dead, and is eternally seated at the right hand of the Father. You know that, and you know that you've believed in Him. Then know this as well. You are called to stand, even if that's all you know. Andrew Dearman shares the account of a convicted criminal. A relatively young man in his late 20s had been the product of a broken home, Actually, he was born out of wedlock and learned early on that he was not particularly wanted by either his mother or his father, the latter he hardly even knew. After landing in prison for violent criminal activity, he was led by the grace of God along with the sincere efforts of some lay Christians to realize he had been called by God first to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and then to a form of ministry to other inmates in the prison. Part of his emotions and spiritual healing came in the tearful realization that God had called him and set him apart for the task of ministry. For him, this meant that God wanted him even if his biological parents didn't. The Lord wanted him. That God had set him apart for a task and therefore that God would be with him. And he began to live out of this newfound call. In the case of the inmate, his incarceration didn't end because of his newly found faith. He hoped his time in jail would, would end so he could do some form of ministry, but he saw instead, now hear this, his incar incarceration at the place where God had put him and the place where God would be with him in the difficulties and joys ahead. He served where he was. Christian, some of y'all wait now. Well, I need to find some place to serve. Open your eyes. You mean I'm going to serve here? Open your eyes. Serve where you are. Obey now. Well, I think the Lord may take me somewhere. Folks, I, I let you on a little secret. If the Lord wants you someplace else, He is more than capable of getting you there. 
You may not like the ride. But he can and will get you there. Serve where you are. I say this for this reason, my brothers and sisters. I I look at our children, our grandchildren. I look at the generations coming after us now. And the one thing that I think they see lacking so often is somebody who lives exactly what they believe consistently, fully, without change. That absolutely stands. And this is where I am. This is what I do. This defines me. How desperate they need to see that. Christian young people need to see folks that stand and stay. Who do what's before them to do. Trusting the Lord for the outcomes. Trusting Him for the reward. His word is going to be fulfilled. And His word, even of wrath, is going to be fulfilled. And oh, bless the Lord, oh my soul, for the Christian, that word of wrath was fulfilled 2,000 years ago outside the city of Jerusalem on the hill Golgotha. And as we have placed our faith and trust in Him, that judgment doesn't fall on us. We are granted life eternal. Oh, Christian, stand. Stay. Stable obedience in a tumultuous world. Let's pray.